have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, but if you don't have one this morning, there should be one in the hymnal rack there on your pew, or there should be one on the seat. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We've been going through our series, Impact, When We Meet God, and some of the things that we've learned in this series, I've had a lot of fun studying, so thank you guys for the opportunity to walk through this with you. And before we start uh, today, I just want to say a couple of words about uh, the Bible, uh, about preaching. Uh, here's what I believe about the Bible. Uh, I believe that the Bible uh, is infallible. It's inerrant. There's nothing in the Bible that's false. Maybe some of y'all believe that. Are you okay? Are you with me this morning? Anyway, believe that God's Word contains and is the Gospel that explains who God is and what we are. That's the reason when we come to church, we open up God's Word, and we pick a passage, a thought of Scripture, and what we do is we read that and we walk through that, and what we talk about, we try to draw out from that passage of Scripture. Because honestly, if we spend the whole time talking about what I had for breakfast this week or how my week was, honestly, honestly, who cares, right? You can go ahead and nod your head and say that's okay. Ultimately, we want to know what does God's Word say. So, my belief that the Bible is God's Word and it does not have any mixture of error. I don't believe the Bible contains God's Word and there's errors along with it. I believe the Bible is God's Word. And so from that, that come, that produces, that uh, guarantees that I want to preach from the Bible. Does that make sense? Are we on the same page? Oh, this is not too off topic, too random. I'm just trying to tell you kind of where I come from, my theological bent. I believe that Jesus um, actually meant what he said when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except or but through me. So I believe that there is one God, there is one way to heaven, that there is God's Word, which we know as the Bible, 66 books, and throughout that, it's a better way to look at it is it's not individual books, but rather a web that goes throughout the Bible that contains the message of redemption. Buying back what has been lost. So that's kind of, you guys come, maybe you're, you're um, I'm new to you, and maybe you're new to me, and that's kind of what we do um, as far as uh, preaching on, on Sunday morning. I want to read you, read you a, a short statement along these lines. This is from John MacArthur. He said, Should not our preaching be biblical exposition? Exposition means drawing out from what the Bible says to explain instead of trying to read our thoughts into the Bible. See the difference? So he says, Should not our preaching be biblical exposition reflecting our conviction that the Bible is the inspired, that means that it's from God, not from the creations of men, or the minds of people, and inerrant, meaning it has no error, Word of God. If we believe that, and this comes from the book of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, if we believe that all Scripture is inspired by God and inerrant, must we not be equally committed to the reality that it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness? Should not that magnificent truth determine how we preach. So, kind of the reason why I preach 
like I preach, and you may like that or you may not. And honestly, I'm just going to preach the Bible and there are different personality styles. But the reason why we walk through the Bible is because it is only from God's Word that we can get true answers about our true human condition. We all on the same page? That good? Okay. Clear some things up. All right. Well, what we're going to do today, we're going to look at verses 7, 8, and 9. And here is our, here's our message in a sentence. Here it is. God wants you to receive His free gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. It is that simple. Notice in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, He, speaking of God, might show the surpassing riches, or another version translates it, the exceeding riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here's where the meat is. Check it out. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God not a result, as a result of works, so that no one may boast. The Bible right here very clearly explains that we don't meet God halfway in getting saved. In the past weeks, we looked at several things. If you want to go back and look at verses 1, 2, and 3, we looked at kind of the who of salvation. In other words, who really needs to be saved? Is it just the quote-unquote bad people? Or do you have the people who are good and they don't really need it? But notice the Bible all throughout verses 1, 2, and 3 says that all people need God's forgiveness. No matter who they are, no matter what language they speak, no matter what country they're from, whether they have a lot of money or whether they're poor, whether they have a certain type of hairstyle, it doesn't matter what their dress is, that all people need salvation. So then in, in verses 4 through 6, we kind of looked at, at the what of salvation, right? Like last week, like what, what really is it? And the what of salvation, being born again, is the word regeneration. Let's say that again together this week. Ready? Regeneration. And that is something that God does in us. It's not simply us praying a prayer or joining a church or signing a card. Being born again, being saved, is what God does in us. So in verse 7, we kind of find the why of salvation. Have you ever stepped back, for those of you who have been in church for a while, and asked the question, why would God save anybody? Now it's easy, especially if we've gone to Bible school, or RAs, or GAs, or Awana, and we, we look at the Bible and we say, okay, God is God, so kind of, saving people that's kind of what he does right it's kind of like you know dad works the job mom does this little brother does this um the dog does this um god's his job is to save and that's simply where we stop but what we're going to look at today is that god was never under obligation to save even one person you realize that god could have been totally just in letting every person suffer the wrath of god because of sin I mean, think about a judge. Does anybody cast judgment upon a judge if he has a criminal before him and this criminal is guilty of all sorts of um, armed robbery or grand larceny, murder, and then he's there on trial and the judge says, well, you've done this, we know you've done this, you are guilty, here's the sentence. 
I've never known a person to stand up in court and say, Your Honor, it's wrong for him to go to jail because he's committed these crimes. It's like, well, because he's committed those crimes, therefore, it is right that he goes to jail or gets some type of punishment. But notice the why of salvation there in verse 7. This is the first purpose clause that we find in the passage is so that God could demonstrate how great He is. Amen? I mean, it's for God to demonstrate not how important, this is going to blow a lot of church people's perception of Christianity out of the water. Check it out. Salvation was never designed by God to show us how important we are. It was designed and shown to the world as a display of how awesome God is. You see how it changes the perspective around? Because so often we, we get the perception that God, everything in the universe revolves around us. Now, we've talked about this in past weeks. Some of you have worked with people like that. <laughs> okay? Like the whole world revolves around them. In the Scripture, everything revolves around God and His glory. Now, that doesn't mean that we are unimportant, but it simply means that God and His greatness trump our importance. And because God's greatness is of utmost importance, because of that, we are important. You see how that all fits together? But if we get it the other way around, then it's like we're using God to make us feel important. Rather, the way we get our importance and the way we get our joy and the way we get our kind of like energy for life is we see God and His greatness and we're like, wow, if God is that awesome and He loved me this much, then wow, He is worthy to be worshipped. Notice in verse 7. So that in the ages to come, this is God's, for those of you who are taking notes, this is God's purpose in salvation. This is awesome. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. Man, this means that as time goes on, some of you are, how many of you are country music fans? Okay, and we've got a lot of liars in here who are not raising the hands. This is Virginia. Okay, uh, the Tracy Lawrence song, As Time Marches On. It's kind of a sad song, isn't it? But he has one thing right, that time does march on. And the Bible is explaining in verse 7 the reason why God came into this world. He sent His Son to come and, and suffer terribly on a cross and to be rejected by His friends to be left all alone, to be beaten with sticks and with fists and have a crown of thorns jammed down on his face. He did all of that so that in the ages to come, it would show that he is great. God is great. Like the little kid's prayer, God is good, let him thank us. For this food, amen. I mean, I'm telling you folks, the Bible here is explaining that God is demonstrating His love so that the surpassing riches, the, 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 the picture here is to kind of throw something beyond. And I'm sure that some of you have seen the shot put in the Olympics, right? You get these guys that are just, I mean, they've got muscles coming out of their earlobes. I mean, these guys are huge. And they take that shot put and they spin around a certain amount of times and they, you know, they make that sound and they throw it. What's kind of scary is seeing the women's shot put. You're like, wow, I mean, if 
You were out on a date and she didn't like what you ordered. She could, if she got you in a headlock, you'd be a dead man. I mean, you know, you just kind of watch the TV at a distance, if you know what I mean. So picture that. And the word for surpassing or exceeding means here is the limit and it goes far beyond. The love of God goes far beyond anything. We looked at last week that we don't need a friend who has a lot of sympathy if we're in financial trouble and no money, right? Because he can come alongside you and say, well, I'm here with you. You you say, yeah, well, we're broke together and that's no fun. Then you don't need a friend who's got a bunch of money but is greedy. You need a friend who has lots of money and lots of mercy. And the Bible says that God is full of mercy. And He has mercy that goes far beyond anything else. Now for the thinkers out there, this is a very interesting phrase in the Greek New Testament. In fact, you could translate this instead of His, the surpassing richness of His grace, you could translate it in His very, very great grace. So what the Apostle Paul's trying to get through here is, dude, this is awesome. You guys get that? That's deep, cool, awesome. He's trying to say, guys, in the strongest terms, I'm telling you that God's love goes beyond anything that you could ever even imagine. That God's love is not conditional. God does not say, I will love you if you will follow these sets of rules. God's love uh, is not, it doesn't have parameters that says, I will love you only when you do these things and only when you stay away from these activities. The Bible says that God loved us, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, check it out, and that while we were, help me out, church, and while we were still what? Sinners. Christ died for us. While we were still rebels and the enemies of God. Now, in war, you don't normally love your enemy, do you? Not the point. But Paul is making a picture. He's painting a scene that God's love is so intense that God's love can forgive and offer grace even to His enemies. You know, Jeff, why would God really do any of this? Well, notice there in verse 7 that He might show His grace and His kindness. You see all of these phrases in verse 6 and 7. His great love, His mercy, His rich grace, His kindness. And if you were to go back to the Old Testament, you would find a, a Hebrew word, hesed, which is God's faithfulness and His loving kindness. You remember all the stories in the Old Testament, right? Like when you were a kid and you were sitting there and you're watching the Charles, Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments. Any of you remember that? Some of y'all watch it every time it comes on TV. You're sitting there watching and you're like, okay, God did all of these things in Egypt. He sent these plagues, like a plague of darkness, like lights out in the middle of the day. Hello, freak out, sci-fi. To show the Egyptians that he was real and to simply let my people go. Like that's what some people say about a preacher who preaches a long time. They say, just let my people go, but we're going to keep going. So, I mean, all throughout the Exodus, you see God 
revealing himself in incredible miracles, and yet the Israelites get right outside into the wilderness, and they begin to have a lack of faith in God. And we're like, man, you are dumb, right? We're sitting there, and we're like, man, you guys are stupid. He's already done all this, and you're in the middle of the Red Sea, and you don't think that God can do great things, even though he's already done greater things. What is your problem? But you see God continually coming back with his faithfulness and loving kindness. You went into business with a partner and they had break after break after break in the contract, you'd probably want out. Right? I mean, if you don't keep any of your end of the bargain and I can't trust you, I'm going to take you to court if you can't settle out of court and we're through. All throughout the pages of the Bible, you see the people of God breaking not contract, but covenant which was not something written in paper, but was a basically a blood pact. And yet God comes back over and over and over again. You know what that says to me? Like Peter came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, how, how often do I have to forgive people? Apparently somebody was ticking Peter off. You ever been there? Somebody just keeps on taking you off and he, he comes to Jesus and he says, is there a limit on forgiveness that I forgive them this much and after that I give them a closed fist healing? Sometimes, for some. But Jesus gives the parable and he says, it's forgiveness. Since we have forgiveness from God, if we place our faith in Jesus, since we get that unconditionally, therefore, no matter who it is, and this is so difficult sometimes, but it is the gospel. Please hear me. When people offend us and they break contract, when they break covenant, if there's unfaithfulness, if there's meanness, through the power of God, if you're a follower of Christ, He can give you the ability to have the spirit of forgiveness. Only God can do that. Only God can do that. It is a supernatural thing, forgiveness. Um, Speaking of the last part in verse 7, the surpassing richness of His grace. Surpassing riches, excuse me, of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Um, I don't know if y'all ever go to the mall. Any, we have any mall people here? Okay, I, I'm, I'm usually drugged to the mall on an average of once every four decades. I just don't like the mall. But when I do go to the mall, um, I'm taken into the store, and you know, mom or family member will say, "You need to buy these clothes," and I'm like, "I have pants." When my pants wear out, I'll get new pants. I'm just that simple. And they go try to buy clothes for me. I go outside and I sit and I watch people. Have you ever watched people at the mall? Okay, right? You've got the guys coming through um, who've never heard of a belt. You know, all of a sudden I want to start belt donation. I'm like, here man, just just take it. Just take it. It's okay. But one one of the things I really enjoy is I enjoy watching the older people. I do. I do. Um, Watch them walking through the mall. And it's it's so cool. You see a couple who is very up in years, let's call it mature. Is that okay? Is that all right? A very mature couple. And, and they're walking along, they still, they're still holding arm, you know, the thing that you're supposed to do, guys, put, you know, right here, and they put their, okay, all right. Curls for the girls, young guys, all right. So they're walking through the mall, and you just see that, and you're like, man, that is really awesome, because that's a picture, hopefully, of faithfulness, unless it's like the senior dating service, and it's like their first time out. I heard a story of a, an older couple and they were riding down the road and the husband, he's there in the driver's seat of the pickup truck and his wife's over here and she said, you know, honey, I, 
I remember back in the day, and I mean, we'd ride down the road, and we'd be close to each other, and you'd have your arm around me, and we'd listen to music, and I just really enjoyed that, and I wish it was back the way that it was. She kept driving, and looked over, and said, I ain't moved. It's kind of like a ripple effect. Please hear me. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. Throughout Scripture, we see the picture that it is not God who has moved. It is us who have moved. God has never said for any person except for those who have hardened their heart time and time again so that it's not so much that they don't want to hear God, it's that they can't hear God. God has never said, I'm going to remove myself so far from you that I am leaving you alone. Please hear me. God is there. And a better picture would be that not that we've moved to the other side of the car, but we've opened up the door when it's gone, when it's moving, and we've jumped out and we're there on the side of the road. And God in His grace and His forgiveness sees our insanity. And He comes to this world in a terrible time in history as a despised person, a Jew in the Roman Empire. And He suffers everything that He suffered. He had 12 guys, one of which betrayed him to his death. And the other 11, he told them time and time again. I mean, can you picture this? Hey guys, I'm going to die and then I'm going to come back. So you might want to be ready for that. That's a paraphrase. That's the paraphrase version. And they're like, what? I mean, even after Jesus died, they still didn't know what was going on. And then when Jesus appeared to them, they're like, oh! Now I get it. I mean, he's working with guys that for the most part are not really, as we could say, mentally there. A lot of the times they just didn't get what Jesus was saying. And through all of that, you see that Jesus pulls over the car and he comes and he doesn't give us CPR. He resurrects us going back to verse number five. Even when we were dead in our sins and our transgressions, he made us alive. Wow, what a great truth. Amen, church? I mean, what, what a great truth that we can be so jacked up and messed up and twisted that we're deceived by Satan. We're hooked on all sorts of stuff, not just chemicals. We're hooked on pride. We're hooked on arrogance. We're hooked on anger. And yet, he sees all of this. We don't have a desire for God, but he comes into the picture and he says, because I am great, I will save you. And that's why in verse number 8, It says, for by grace are ye saved through faith. By grace are you saved. You say, Jeff, can I lose my salvation? Greek New Testament in verse 8, the phrase, you have been saved, is in the perfect. That means something that happened in the past, it's not going to be reversed in the future. It means you have been saved, so the present result is that you are saved. It would be like us... um, Let's say if we were in the North Atlantic, a Titanic type of scenario. Our boat went down. We were about to die of hypothermia. But yet another boat of compassionate people came and they rescued us out of the water. Can you imagine being down the bottom of that rescue boat? Half freezing. Can't even really talk. You're so cold. But you're saved. 
That's what happens to a lot of people when they get saved. They're like, man, I don't, I'm not even really sure what happened. All I know is that last week I didn't have a desire for God, and this week I do. The other month, man, I, I didn't care about God's Word or the Gospel, but now I do. They are saved, although they might not feel the full effects of being saved. And because of that, in verse 10, which we're going to look at next week, we're going to look at once you get saved, the incredible plan that God has for your life. So what are we saved from? We're saved from verses 1, 2, and 3. We're saved from hell. And by the way, um, I believe that the Bible explains that hell is not just a metaphor for the grave, but hell is an actual, a real place. Please hear me. And it's filled with real people. And it goes on forever. We're going to take a message, hopefully in the next couple of months, to explain what the Bible teaches about hell and why hell is not uh, overkill, but we'll wait for that time to, um, to walk through that. Now notice once again that God was not obligated to save anyone. You realize that God could have been totally just. This is an amazing picture. God could have been totally righteous and a good judge if He would have never sent Jesus to die on the cross. Now hold on, hold on, Jeff. I thought that God was forgiving. He is. I thought that God is full of mercy. He is. But do you realize that mercy and grace are so far beyond the requirements for justice, it's not even funny? God could have allowed the whole world to go to hell because God's number one obligation is to do what is just. What is just? If you break the law, you suffer the penalty. Help me out. If you do the crime, you what? Do the time. But God is so full of love and mercy that He came into the world. And here's how much further God went. He says, I am not willing, this is awesome, that any should perish, but that all, all of us, all of Franklin County, all of the U.S., all of Africa, all of Asia, all of the Hindus in India, all of the radical Muslims in Iran, all of the atheist people in the Communist Party still in Russia today, all of the Western intellectuals who are so prideful that they don't even believe that God exists, God says, I am not willing that even they should perish, but even they, my enemies, the ones who don't believe in me, the ones who don't trust in me, I love them even when they were sinners. Man, that will knock your socks off if we start living the gospel. So, man, Jeff, how do I live this? You live it because you realize that we could never earn our way to God. And that it's all through grace. So I should give grace. You see the connection? If God has forgiven me, then it's not that I have to, but I get to, through the power of God, forgive other people. For by grace are you saved through faith. Through faith. Now, this word faith here speaks about a trust, a total trust in God. Let me ask you a question. Has there ever been a time to where you have transferred trust from yourself to God? I mean, total trust. Kind of like the driver's seat. You ever remember when you started driving? Flipping back in the pages of the memory, right? You, you got in the car and your mom or dad was there. My mom always held on to the um, handle with both hands as to hang on for dear life. I don't know why, in case we got in a wreck, she'd be able to hang on the handle, and I don't know how that would help. But when I began to drive, I know she was probably praying, say, Lord Jesus, 
I know I'm going to heaven one day, but please help it not to be now. When they gave us the driver's seat, they were giving, they were placing a certain amount of faith in us. And this is biblical faith. Getting out of the driver's seat and saying, Jesus, take over my life. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. And we're going to get in some deep water here for just a moment. The question a lot of people have in verse 8, for by grace have you been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. The question is, what is the gift of God? Is it the grace or is it the faith? Well, two theologians that are on opposite ends of the spectrum for much of theology, one will be John Wesley, the other would be John Calvin. Here's what Calvin said. Faith brings a man empty to God that he may be filled with the blessings of Christ. John Wesley said, neither this faith nor this salvation is owing to any works, any good things, that you ever did, will do, or can do. So here you have John Calvin who's very famous for being if we're emphasizing the sovereignty of God. And then John Wesley is famous for emphasizing the free will of man. And both of these theologians say, man, the whole package of salvation does not come from you. If you're here today and you need to be saved, you've got to understand that it's by grace. It's God's riches through what Jesus did for us. And that it's not through what we've done. A couple months ago, had the privilege to go to California to be in a friend's wedding. And when we were there, we had some time afterwards to drive over to Lake Tahoe. And on the way, I mean, I've never been in that area of California before. It's just beautiful. There are these gigantic trees that go up. And California is a very unique place. It's the land of the fruit and the nuts. Um, not just, you know... Um, with agriculture. So we were um, driving along and, and we, we saw this stream off the side of the road. So, so we pulled over and it's me and two friends from seminary and my younger, youngest brother. And we began, we're like, wow, look at that stream. Look at these trees. And so we kind of went down this embankment. There's like an old tire there, um, just some random trash. But it's okay because everything else is so beautiful. We spent like 45 minutes. We found a pine cone that I'm not, I'm not lying. It's in Greenville. This is not a preacher's story. I'll take a picture of it and tag you on Facebook if you like. A pine cone like this long. I mean, it was awesome. We were like, this is so great. And then finally we said, well, we probably ought to go to Lake Tahoe. So we got on the car, drove about seven minutes down the road. Probably the most picturesque, beautiful, breathtaking sight I have ever seen. We pulled off this side of the road, went up basically 30 yards, and it would take your breath away. You looked out, and it was the magnificence of God's creation. And we were laughing because we said, had we known how great this was going to be, we wouldn't have spent one second down by the old tire dump. And I think there's a lot of people that God begins to move upon their heart and say, you need to receive my free gift of eternal life. But we've spent all this time and off the side of the road and trying to get good enough to come to God instead of going a little bit further and receiving, as it says at the end of verse 8, it is the gift of God. And sitting there and looking at Scripture and God's revealing to us that Jesus is the only way to be saved and what we must do is put our faith and trust in Him. 
Oswald Chambers said this, the only sign that a man is saved is that he has received something from Jesus Christ. You're like, well, Jeff, what do I have to give up to be saved? You have to give up your pride. I'm told by monkey hunters, <clears throat> somewhat of a random illustration, at least this is written down, that the monkey hunters in Africa, one way that they catch a monkey is they hollow out a coconut and they put nuts inside. Well, it's just big enough for the monkey's hand to get inside to grab the nuts. But notice once he grabs, his hand expands so that he can't pull it out. And from what I'm told, hunters will walk up and this monkey will begin to freak out. Now, you've got to admit, that would be kind of... We're not talking about the clubbing of the monkey, obviously, but that would be somewhat entertaining to see a monkey begin to freak out because it can't get away. But notice, all it has to do is... Let go, and its hand will slip right out, and it can be free. But I just think of myself, for years I heard the gospel, but I was unwilling to give up my sin. You have to give up your pride. You have to stop trusting yourself. And it's so simple, you have to place your faith in Jesus alone. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For who regards you as superior... What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? The point is that everything that we have in life is a gift of God. Can we agree on that, church? That everything we have comes from God. So if you're here and you say, man, Jeff, I need to give my life to Jesus. I need to be saved. Please understand that it's not anything you can do because the job has already been done. It's like showing up to a beautiful house that's just been finished and you're there with your work belt on and you've got your saws and you've got your saw horses and you say, I'm ready, reporting for duty, sir. And you say, well, this has already been completed. And by the way, there's nothing that we could ever do that would equal what Jesus has done. You ever notice little children when they talk about their dads? Pretty awesome, isn't it? Like, I, you know, me and my friends were... We're a little bit younger, and I've never heard children say, well, my dad is more sensitive than you. My dad will cry over an infomercial. Beat that! I mean, we don't, we don't brag about the weaknesses of a father. But children will brag about how much their dad can lift and what their dad can make and who their dad can beat up and how many weapons their dad is and how tall their dad is and how much time he spends with their family because he thinks they're important. And please hear me, when you get saved, it doesn't mean that you walk around like some monk without any um, fire in your life, it means that you stop boasting about what you can do and you boast about what your Father has done through Jesus. Amen? I mean, it's like something you can get fired up about and you don't have to be arrogant about it because you're like, look man, without the grace of God, I would not even be here. But let me tell you who is awesome. God is awesome and just break it down and walk through what you used to be like, what happened when Jesus saved you and what He has helped you become today. That's a biblical testimony. So that's the rationale of salvation. And all it is is to receive the gift of God. You're like, now Jeff... Um, what does that actually mean? Well, it means that you transfer trust in yourself and in what you can do to trusting 
what Jesus has done and who Jesus is. There's a uh, former professor, William Wilson of Psychiatry at Duke University Medical Center. It's a very interesting statement what he made about being saved. He said, one of the greatest causes of mental illness is unresolved guilt. Feelings of shame, inadequacy, missing the mark, not measuring up are all sources of some guilt feelings. And he says, the answer to guilt is grace. Let me read that one more time. The answer to guilt is grace and the new birth. The new birth leads to the forgiveness of sin. Jeff, you mean that I can be made into a new person if I come to Jesus? Yes. If He changed the Apostle Paul from a murdering, self-righteous person who would bust in the doors of Christians and drag them off to prison and sit there and watch a man being beaten to death with rocks? That's kind of graphic, isn't it? I mean, honestly. You ever seen somebody get beat up? And it's like, okay, you beat the dude up. Probably time to call it. Okay, stop. Stop! And then you jump in because you're like, if this person doesn't stop, this guy's going to get killed. But to sit there and watch, and watch as the godly deacon Stephen had the life beaten out of him through stoning. Paul was so filled with hate, he was Saul at this time, he even held the, the coats of those who were throwing the rocks so the coats wouldn't get dirty, wouldn't get stolen. But yet God created in him such a changed heart that he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain." I've got my checkbook right here. And you're all like, alright, cool. If I pulled out a pen and I wrote in your name, if I wrote in your name, that's what I'm writing, your name. And I wrote this out to you for an amount. Let's say I wrote it out to you for $1,000. And I tore this check off. And I signed it. And I said, this is my gift to you. Is it yours yet? I thought somebody was going to get Pentecostal and run down the aisle for... It's only yours when you come and receive it. Jesus has done the work. He's died on the cross. He's risen again. And He's telling you today that what you must do, let go of what's inside the coconut, like the monkey. Let go of it. And with that hand, receive the gift of Jesus Christ. You say, Jeff, how do I do that? Here's what it is. You change your mind from trusting in yourself and ask Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord. 